let's ask God again to speak to us. Lord, thank you for this little book of Ruth, just four chapters. Father, we recognize that you're not mentioned a whole lot in it, but yet we recognize that this book has been given to us from you and is here to teach us about you. And so, Lord, tonight as we come to look at it, would we see you and would we recognize your beauty and would we recognize your character and would we leave here tonight glad that we know you and glad that you're our God. Speak to us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Judges, we're finally finished it. Uh, If you had to describe the book of Judges as a movie genre, I don't know what you would come up with. Uh, There's parts of it that are a bit like horror, aren't they? There's that bit where Jael drives the tent peg into the temple. You know, it's it's a horrible bit. And then some of it, it's, you know, a bit like a a kind of thriller. You know, you've got the Ehud who who goes into the the king, I've got a secret message for you, and the left-handed man, and he stabs him through the belly, and he kills him, and he gets away. Bit of a thriller. Um, But I think that I would describe it as a tragedy. You know one of those films that you watch and and at the end of it you come away going, I was just terribly sad. Because that's what the book of Judges is like. This terribly sad picture when God's people over and over and over again, no matter how gracious and merciful God is to them, they, they continually turn away from God. And I must say that the last line of the book of Judges that's pretty tragic too. Let me just read it. It says this. This is the very last line in the whole book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No ruler, no king, and everybody just doing their life, doing what was right in their own eyes. And what do we see was right in their own eyes? Well, everything that was wrong. It's a tragedy. But tonight we're coming to the book of Ruth. And if I was to describe the book of Ruth as a film genre, it would be a romantic one. Because the book of Ruth, it's, it's a love story. It's a true story of love. That's what this little four-chapter book is all about. It's about love. And we're going to see that there's different elements of the love story. We've got the, the love between Ruth and between her mother-in-law, Naomi. We're going to see that love in the story. And then we've got the love between Boaz and Ruth, and we see that love develop and flourish, and and it ends with the marriage. We're going to see that love too. But tonight, my hope is that as we look at this little book, this little love story, that tonight what we're going to see first and foremost is the love that God has for us, the type of love that God has for his people. And tonight, as we look at the whole book, we're going to look at it in three parts. And the first part is the story. We're going to look at the the big story of Ruth, and we're going to make sure that we know what happens in the story. Then the second thing we're going to look for is the Savior. How does this little book, how does it point us to Jesus? Because if you remember, all of Scripture is breathed out by God, but Jesus also says that it's all about Him. So how does it point us to the Savior? And then the, the third part that we're going to look at is, what is the purpose of it? What is it here to teach us? So we're going to dive straight in with, with the story of the book of Ruth. And if you have a look, you've got a little outline of the story here that'll help you follow along. And if you want to ever look at the book of Ruth at home, that'll give you a little guide as to how to look at it. So chapter one opens with famine and with fleeing. Uh, chapter one, it starts off in Bethlehem, which is in the, the land of Israel. And as you know, every time the people rebelled against God, he, he judged them or he disciplined them in some way. And what's happened is that at some point in in the book of Judges, some point in that big long period of history, the people have turned from God 
and God has brought famine on the land. And so one little family, I'm sure there were other families with them, but we're told about one little family, a man called Elimelech, which means my God is king, and his wife Naomi, and their two sons, they, they pack up all of their stuff, and they move to the land of Moab. Now, we've met the Moabites before. Do you remember in the book of Numbers? And we had Balaam uh, the, on the donkey, and, 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 and that story, they're, they're the Moabites. So they pass through the land of Moab to get in the land. So, so they're reversing. They're going backwards. And they go to the land of Moab. And they get there, and there's the first funeral because Elimelech dies. But Naomi's okay because she's two sons to provide for her. Two men who can do the work, two men who can plow the fields, two men who will provide for her and look after her and look out for her. So Naomi is okay. And as they live in the land of Moab, the two boys, Mahlon and Kilion, you know, there's some Bible names are really popular today, and I don't think I've heard anyone ever called those. But Mahlon and Kilion, they find two wives, Orpah and Ruth, and they get married. And so here it is, the, the family set up. You can imagine them all living in Moab in a little settlement. The two boys, their two wives, and Naomi, who is being looked after by them all. You've heard of the film Four Weddings and a Funeral? Well, the start of the book of Ruth is two weddings and three funerals. Because we're told that Malon and Kilion also die. Famine and fleeing and then weddings and funerals. And at this point in the story, if you're reading it through the, the eyes of the first readers, this is a really, really tragic situation to be in. And it's tragic for a number of reasons. It's tragic because here are three women with nobody to provide for them. Now today in our society, we sort of think, what? How sexist is that for Marty to say that? But that, that is the way it was in this world. In the ancient world, it was the men who provided. It was the men who did the work. If you didn't have a man, there wasn't much protection for you. If you didn't have a man, there may not be much security or income for you. And so the first readers reading this would have looked at these three women and thought, oh boy, oh boy, how, how are they going to be provided for? How are they going to be looked after? And then the other thing that would have been difficult was just knowing what they were going to do next. The thing that had united them was the, the two boys, Malon and Killian, but now they're gone. What's going to happen? How's the relationship going to be? How's this going to go? So what does Naomi decide? Well, she decides that it's not worth her staying in Moab anymore. See, she's in Moab. She's far from home. She's in an alien land. She doesn't really know the culture even, so she's been there for 10 years. She, but, but it's not her home. And while she's in Moab, she hears that actually back in Israel, there's grain again. The, the crops are growing. The food is there. So what does she decide? She says, you know what? I'm going to go back. going to go back to my people. going to go back to where they worship my God. I'm going to go home again. Because at least I know there's people there. I've got family there. They, they might look after me. And Naomi, very graciously, she, she turns to the two girls. And she says to them, listen, daughters, I love you, but you go back to your homes. There, there's no point in you coming with me to Israel. There's no point in you coming to a foreign land where you don't speak the language, where you don't know the people. There's no point in you coming with me. So girls, go home to your mother's houses. Go back home. And it's interesting that the, the kind of blessing that she, 
she goes to, to, to send them away with. Look at verse 9. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Girls, you go back home. Your husbands are dead. You go back home and you get new husbands. Go back home and, and have a new life. Go back home and, and have a life where you'll, you'll have a man in it to provide for you and to give you security. Go home and you can have that. Don't worry about me. Just, just go. And both the girls at this point, will they turn and they say, no, we're not going anywhere, Naomi. We're, we're staying with you. But Naomi, she, she presses them and she presses them and she presses them. And eventually Orpah says, okay, I love you, but okay, I'll, I'll go. And, and so she starts walking off in one direction. And what we're expecting to read here is that Ruth does the same because there's nothing for her if she goes with Naomi. There's nothing for her if she goes to Israel. There's nothing for her. So what we're expecting to see is Ruth turn around and say, okay, see ya. But she doesn't. She doesn't. And instead, Ruth shows Naomi this, this type of love, this type of commitment that, that is just really incredible. The love she shows to her mother-in-law is a love that is just, well, divine almost. So committed to her. Look at what she says to her. Look at verse 16 of chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. That's incredible, isn't it? There's nothing for Ruth in Israel. Foreign land, foreign people, foreign God. And yet what does she say to Naomi? I am going with you and, and nothing you say is going to stop me. And in fact, I'm binding myself. I'm using the name of your God, the Lord, Yahweh. I'm binding myself to you using his name. If you stop me coming with me, you know, dear help what he will do to me. What commitment she shows. What love she shows. And so Ruth and Naomi, they, they go back. They go back to the land. They go back to Bethlehem. That's where Naomi was, or that's where Naomi was from. Uh, and they get home and and we don't have it in our passage, but whenever they get home, the, the people are really excited to see Naomi back. Hey, look, Naomi's back. You know, you've got to think kind of small village mentality rather than big city mentality. Bethlehem was never a big place. And so she comes back and, hey, it's, it's Naomi. She's back. And, and they come and they greet her. And, and do you know what she says? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. She comes home and, and she recognizes that, that her life is difficult and it's been hard. And she's damaged. She's damaged. But, but she comes home. And it doesn't tell us where they lived. It doesn't give us the details of where they stayed or anything like that. But we can assume that they, they found a lodging place somewhere. We can assume they, they managed to settle down somewhere, Ruth and Naomi. But they didn't have anything and they had no one to provide. And again, this is where we just see Ruth just being, well, amazing. Because you know what she does? She comes back with Naomi and, and they don't have any food. 
Uh, and if you have a look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, look what he says. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's not turning around to Naomi and saying, okay, Naomi, you know, you're, you're the one who knows people around here and you've kind of brought me back here, so what are you going to do? She doesn't say that. No, she says, Naomi, will you let me go into the fields and get us some grain? Will you let me go and, and provide for you? Will you let me do that, Naomi? And Naomi says, go, go, my dear. And so she goes and, and she goes into the fields and she starts gleaning. Now, if you remember back to the book of Leviticus, do you remember Leviticus when we did it? Uh, we had the, the offerings and we had the high priest in Leviticus. Well, also in the book of Leviticus, there were lots of different rules. And one of the rules in Leviticus 19 regards harvest time in Israel. And what it says, it's Leviticus 19. Um, I'll, I'll maybe have we look at it, see if I can get it for a second. Leviticus 19, and I think it's verse... Uh, Oh, I can't find the verses. That's bad. should have had those marked down. Apologies. But anyway, what it says in Leviticus 19 is that they weren't to harvest the edges of the fields. So they relieved the edges kind of with the stuff growing. And what they said was that if the sojourner, if someone from another country was living in there, the, the sojourner could go in and they were free to pick all the grain from around the edge of the fields. It was God's way of providing for the foreigner. It was God's way of providing for the poor. And likewise, God said, and listen, you see, whenever you're doing your harvesting, if you, if you get past a certain part and you, let, you realize that there's stuff left behind that you could pick up, you're not to pick it up. Just leave it. That's for the foreigner. That's for the poor person to come behind so that they've got provision. And so Ruth, she, she takes advantage of this rule, this law, and, and she goes out to the fields and she follows you know, where, where, they're, where they're harvesting and anything that's left behind, she picks it up and, and she puts it in her sack and she goes to the edge of the field and, and she picks up that stuff and she puts it in. Do you know what this is the equivalent of? It's the equivalent of someone with one of those big plastic bags going around the town picking up aluminium cans and stuffing it in the hope of getting some money at the end of the day. This is hard work. This is hard labor. This isn't paying off really big. This is hard graft. But she's doing it out of love. She's doing it out of love for her mother-in-law and, and providing for her. But as she's in the field, the owner shows up. And I don't know what Boaz looks like, but I imagine he's very handsome. It just happens to be in my head. That's what he's like. It doesn't tell us anything of what he looked like. But for some reason, I just imagine this big handsome man coming along, you know. And uh, he gets along, and, and he's looking out at his workers in the field. You know, most of them are probably family members, because that's the, what used to happen. The family would gather the grain. It was grain for the whole family. So it was, you know, his actual daughters and his sons and maybe his nieces and his, and his nephews and the whole family. It was a family affair, probably. And he's sort of looking out, and he, he sees all the work being done, and he sees his servants, too, and the whole team harvesting. And then he notices, you know, this, this girl picking up her aluminium cans, if you like. He notices this girl, you know, just, just picking up the, the dregs of what's left and, and harvesting away around the edges and keeping to the very specific rules that there were. And he says to his men, hey, who, who's she? 
that's Ruth. You know the one who came back with Naomi? And Boaz has heard of her. And Boaz knows what noble character she is. He, he knows the caliber of the lady who's doing this work. And what does he do? He treats her like family. This foreigner, this stranger, this nobody, this Moabite, what does he do? He, he starts to treat her like one of the family. He treats her in a way that on paper she does not deserve. On a way that on paper it does not demand. He, he treats her with such grace and such compassion and such love. Look at the things that he says to her. Uh, take a look at verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do you see how he calls her? Daughter. He's treating her like family. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one. Now the reason she would have done that was because eventually all the stuff would have been picked that she'd be entitled to. And she'd need to go into another field and she'd need to go and glean somewhere else. But he says, listen, don't leave Go, don't go to another field. Don't leave this one. But keep a close eye on my young woman. Let your eye be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. So anywhere you see my women go to glean, you just go with them. Okay? You're, you're one of the girls now. Wherever you see them go, you go there. And then look what he says. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? I've, I've sorted out your protection. Nobody's going to touch you if you're in my field. No one's going to attack you. No one's going to try to molest you. It would have been a dangerous thing for a single foreign woman to be working in a context like this. Boaz says, listen, you're protected. I've sorted out your protection. No one will touch you. And then this is lovely. And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Now, it's interesting. Whenever we think of getting water, it's so easy, isn't it? We just turn on the tap and it's there. But this water has been drawn. This water is precious. This is the water that's going to sustain his workers. This is water that only the workers would normally be allowed to have. Precious commodity. And Boaz says to her, listen, you see, if you need a drink, just go get one. If you're thirsty, just, just go and get a drink. It's just sitting there in the vessels. You can go and get that. And then what does he do as well to this young woman who's wondering how she's going to get food to eat? Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said there, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Come on and eat with us. It's lunchtime. Come on for some lunch with us. It's tea time. Come on for some tea time with us. You know, it gets late and dark at night and it's time to have supper before going home for the night. Come on and come on and get some supper. He provides for her. And he provides for her so much. If you have a look at the, the middle of verse 14, she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Some left over to bring home. Some extra to bring back to Naomi. And then the next day when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed the young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Okay, lads, what I want you to do as well is when you're harvesting, just get some of the stuff together and leave it for her. You know, don't make her do all the hard work. Do some hard work for her. It's amazing, isn't it? She's found herself in the field of this kind, in my mind, handsome man, Boaz. And he treats her like family, and, and he treats her in such a wonderful way. He's so gracious to her. He's so loving towards her. But there's another coincidence, if you like. 
And I use coincidence in inverted commas there because what we're going to see is that nothing is a coincidence in this book. But the coincidence is that, that Boaz just happens to be a relative of Elimelech's. He's a distant relative. And again, in our culture, we don't really get this. But in that culture, if someone died, if a husband died, it would be up to your relative to look after the person, to look after the widow. But obviously, the two sons are dead, Malon and Kilion. So it's going to come to another kind of family member to do this job. And it turns out that Boaz is someone who could do it. He is what's called a kinsman redeemer. He's someone who could marry Ruth legally and take care of her and take care of Naomi as well. And so whenever Ruth gets home from the hard day's graft and starts talking to Naomi, Naomi knows this and she's dead excited. Oh, Naomi! Boaz! Oh, fantastic! He's a great guy. And you know what? He's one of our kinsmen redeemers. But here's what I want you to do, okay? Go get a shower, right? Go get a wash. I smell you after working in those fields all day. Yeah, go get a wash, okay? Get yourself washed. Put on your, your nice clothes. You know, you've been wearing black for I don't know how many years now. Get that off. Get your nice clothes on. And tonight I want you to go down and see him. Tonight I want you to go down to the threshing floor. He'll be there. The, the party will have been over. Go and see him. And so she does, and, and she goes down. And she goes down to the threshing floor and she uncovers his feet. And so he wakes up in the middle of the night freezing. And as he wakes up freezing, he sees a woman at the end of his bed. What's going on here? I'm sure he's thinking, who's that? It's me. Your servant, Ruth. Did you know this year's a leap year? It's a leap year this year. And, and uh, on a leap year, women apparently can propose. Apparently it's a thing. On the 29th of February, didn't really know much about it, but apparently it's a thing. And, and what she actually does when she goes to Boaz is she effectively proposes. She asks him to, to spread his, his wing or, or the corner of his cloak over her. And in the Bible, there's actually a Bible passage about God doing this. And it's this idea of coming under God's care and, and coming under God's protection and, and coming under him as, a, as, a, as one of his people. And that's what Ruth is asking Boaz to do. Listen, will, will you make me yours? I'm sure she felt quite vulnerable asking that. Boaz, will, will you make me yours? Will you look after me? Will you protect me? Will you, will you be my redeemer? Will you be the kinsman who's to, to marry me? Will, will you do that for me? And Boaz, well, he's He's flattered. I think he's handsome, but I think he's kind of George Clooney handsome because it seems that he's a bit older. Because what does he say? He says, listen, I'm, I'm flattered that you haven't went after those young guys. You know, you're interested in me. You know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he knows her character and he's seen her work. And, and there's clearly this love that he has for her as well because he's flattered when she says this. But like any kind of romantic comedy or any comedy or not comedy, like a romantic, romantic film you watch, there's always a kind of a twist. You know, you, know the, you know the plot, the way it works, don't you? You know, boy likes girl, girl likes boy, they're about to get together, and then suddenly something stops them, and it looks like it's never going to work out. And then at the end of the film it does, and they live happily ever after. Well, well, here in this story is the real-life glitch. You see, Boaz, he's a man of integrity. And what he knows is he knows that there is a, a kinsman redeemer closer than him, 
there's someone, if you like, who should have first pick over Ruth. And so he says to Ruth, listen, I'm, I'm so flattered, I'm, I'm so delighted, but, but there's someone who really should have first refusal. Let me go and sort it in the morning. I like his immediacy, you know. I'll go sort it tomorrow. So what does he do? The next day he goes down to the city gate and he finds the, the other kinsman. And he says, look, here's the story. Naomi and Ruth have come back and, 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 and if you, you know, you're entitled to take on whatever property they have. And the kinsman sort of says, oh, that sounds good, property. And then he throws in the spanner and he says, but also if you take their property, you also need to marry Ruth, the Moabites. And this kinsman goes, no, thank you. It's like he doesn't see her character. He doesn't see that, that actually she's the prize. And so Boaz is free to marry her. And so they, they marry. And you can see that at the, in chapter 4. So chapter 4, 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, do you remember how bitter she was at the start all of this awful stuff that happened to her? Her life was over in many ways. Look at what they said. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took him and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And I have to say, this is one of these Bible stories. This is one of these books in the Bible that are true. And it really does end up finishing. And they all lived happily ever after. That's the sense that we get when the book ends. That, that the death and tragedy that was experienced at the start is now replaced with the joy of life at the end. That, that, that Ruth, who'd been left destitute of a husband and destitute of provision, has has now a husband and provision. And, and Naomi has, has those things that, that she could have only dreamed of at the start of the book. It's a great story. And it's a true story. And it's a beautiful story. And it's a love story. And it's much nicer to preach it than the book of Judges was. <laughs> so it's nice tonight. The next two things I want to show you, though, are this. How, how does it point to the Savior? Well, the way it points to the Savior is the very last line. Do you remember at the end of Judges, it said there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes? Well, here what we have is that we have the, the, the great, 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 great grandfather of King David being bored. Obed is the, the great, 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 or something like that grandfather of King David. And so we've got Obed being born, which leads to the, the king of Israel, King David, who was a Messiah. He was a savior. And then whenever you follow the line of David, who does it end up with? Do you remember Matthew's genealogy from a, a few years ago or a couple, last year when I first arrived? Where does David lead? David leads to the Messiah. David leads to Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but, but I find it amazing that in, in, in this dark time of the judges, when it all looks so bleak and all looks so dark, 
that God is at work even in that darkness, in that bleakness, to bring the ultimate rescuer into the world. So there's the Savior in the book of Ruth. But, but what's the purpose? What is the purpose of the book of Ruth? You know, is it, I don't know, dating advice? You know, have a shower before you go and meet your ideal man? No, it's not that. What, what is it? What is the purpose? It, it's the, to teach us about God. It's to show us something about him. And what it's here to show us in particular are, are things about God's love. It's really interesting whenever you read the, the book of Ruth because Ruth and Boaz are portrayed as almost perfect people. The author of the book of Ruth, he doesn't say anything negative about them. Everything they do is good. Everything they do is heroic. Everything they do is just perfect and marvelous and awesome. And whenever you read your Bible and you see that happening, there, there's two things you need to know. First of all, you need to know that they weren't perfect people, okay? They were flawed. They were messed up. They, they weren't perfect people. No one is. There's only one perfect one, the Lord Jesus, in the whole of Scripture. That's the first thing you need to know. But the second thing you need to know is that the reason why authors portray them as perfect is to try to show through their actions something about the perfect character of God. So if you remember Genesis chapter 1, we're made in God's image. We all in some way are, are made to reflect Him. And so whenever you read about people who seem perfect in the Bible, the reason they're portrayed as perfect is to really try to reflect something of God's character to the readers. And, and within Ruth and Boaz, we, we see three aspects of God's love which, which are just so encouraging. And the first thing is this. We see that God's love is steadfast. God's love is immovable. God's love is a, a committed love, an unwavering love, a love that, that cannot be changed or altered in any way. That is the type of love that God has for us. And we see that in Ruth's words to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you die, I will die. Where you're buried, I will be buried. As Ruth just kind of expresses the committed love that she has for Naomi, it's a reflection of the type of love that God has for us. A committed, unwavering love. In Christian circles, do you know what we like to talk about? Our commitment to God. That's what we talk about, isn't it? You know, here, you know, how's your commitment to God? Oh, I'm so committed to God. Or else you can be in the doldrums of despair. Oh, my commitment to God is rubbish. But what we don't think about very much is God's commitment to us. God has committed himself to us. In the Bible, it's called a covenant love. He's agreed to love us. He's He's decided to love us. He set his love upon us and nothing can move it or change it. And tonight, I, I want you to remember that. You see, if you feel your commitment to God is rubbish, do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't match that. <laughs> he doesn't, well, her, her commitment to me is rubbish, so I'm not going to commit very much to her. He doesn't do that. He's committed to us no matter what. 
If you're a child of God, he's adopted you into the family. He set his love upon you and he's not going to take it off you. Even when you mess up, even when you fail, even when you blow it, he has committed himself to you. So that's the first thing we see. His, his, his love is steadfast. The second thing we see is that his love is gracious. And, and we see this reflected in Boaz and in the field. How he treated Ruth in the field was just incredible. Far beyond what anyone deserved, far beyond what anything was required, he, he treated her in such a gracious way, treated her better than she deserved or, or, or could have hoped for. And folks, this is the type of love that God has for us. A gracious love. God loves us in a way that we, I don't think we, we even grasp. God's love for us is so much bigger than I think we even have a, a slight conception of. He's good to us. And, and just like Boaz, he wants to be good to us. He wants to give us good things wants to give us his favor. Again, God is not standing back, sitting back going, you know what, I've got to see how they perform today and then I might, you know, be good to them. No, no, he, he sees our performance and that it's pretty weak sometimes. He says, you know what, I just want to be good to them. I just want to love them. I just want to show them grace. I just want to show them goodness. It's a bit like your grandchildren. You know, your grandkids come around and they you know, they misbehave. You know, they don't do what they're told. And what do you do as grandparents? You go, I just want to love them. I just want to be good to them. Act their behavior is bad, but I just love them. And again, that's the, the love that God has. And we see it here, his, his gracious love. And we see that most wonderfully displayed in the cross, don't we? Aliens from him, rebels, rebels against him, no interest in him. And what does he do? Out of love, he sends his son to die for us. What gracious love. And then his love is also redeeming. Um, in the ancient world, you could be a slave, and what would happen is that, that, that someone would come, and if they were to redeem you, they'd buy you out of your slavery. And they'd pay for you to, to come out of that, and you'd come out of that slavery, and suddenly you would have a new life. A totally new life. A, a life that was so different to the life that you had before. And again, this is what we see Boaz does, doesn't it? Here, here is Ruth, and she's in a place of poverty. She's in a place of need. She's a foreigner. She's no family. And he goes, and as her kinsman, he, he buys her out of that. He, he pays the kinsman's diary, and he buys her out of that, and he, he brings her into a new life. He redeems her out of her old life, and he brings her into a new one. And again, that's what God does, isn't it? brings us out of an old life and brings us in to a new one. Folks, I hope that, that you recognize how much God loves you. I hope you recognize how committed he is to you. And not on the basis of your performance, not on the basis of how good a Christian you are, but on the basis of his word. He's chosen to love you. He's covenant to love you. He's, he's decided to love you and he loves you and he'll always love you and he'll never take his love away from you. I recognize time's gone, but let me just finish off with the, with the last two points because they're important. 
the, the, the last two things are not about God's love, but two other things about God that is helpful to remember. And the first one is this, is that God works behind the scenes. God is not really mentioned in the book of Ruth very much. And, and there's no point where God is mentioned actually doing something. So at no point does it say, you know, and God, you know, brought Ruth into the field of Boaz. It doesn't say that. It just seems that as the story goes on, it's like all of these coincidences, they just sort of line up, these coincidences, you know? So Ruth decides to go back, and then she goes into a field, and it just happens to be Boaz, and, and, and he just happens to be the kinsman redeemer, and then he just happens to fancy her, and, and she just happens to fancy him, and Ruth just happens to, you know, just happens to give her the right advice. And, and the kinsman who, who could have had her just happens not to want her. And, and then, you know, think about it. She, she's been in, in, in Moab for 10 years, married to, to one of her husbands, and they weren't able to conceive in that time, and, and she just happens to get pregnant this time and just happens to bear a son who just happens to be the grandfather of, Obed, or of David, who just happens to be the great, 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 great grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you, you read Ruth, and, you know, if you're an atheist, you're just going, oh, goodness, a lot of coincidences there. But here's the thing, it's that in all of that, God is working behind the scenes. In all of that, the Lord is at work. And I just want to encourage you that, that as you live your life, in fact, maybe you've never had a kind of spectacular moment where you go, oh, I know the Lord is doing this in my life, or I know the Lord has put this in my circumstances because he told me in a dream. You know, most of us don't have those experiences. Our experience is, well, we, we trust God and, and we get on with our life and it seems fairly normal and fairly ordinary. But what I want to say to you is that, that God is at work behind the scenes, plotting out your path, leading you to where he wants you to go. And maybe your circumstances aren't the circumstances you would have chosen. But what I want you to remember tonight is that the Lord has been at work plotting out your path at work behind the scenes. And maybe tonight you're, you're worried that you're kind of off the path or you're worried that, that life hasn't gone your way and you're wondering, what's God doing? Can I encourage you tonight? He, he knows what he's doing. You might not know what he's doing. You know, Ruth and Boaz didn't know what he was doing. You know, Ruth and Boaz didn't know that Obed was going to be the great, 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 great grandfather of David and the great, 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 great of Jesus. They didn't know this. But as we look back on history, we see that God's been at work. And I want to encourage you tonight that, that God is at work behind the scenes. And lastly, that God is at work even in the darkest days. Verse 1, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled. You see, this love story, it actually takes place within the movie of Judges. At some point in the big Judges movie, there's this little scene of this little love story within that big picture. Within those dark days, those depressing days, those days of rebellion, those days of violence, those days when everyone just did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel, this happened. This past week, a hashtag went on to Facebook saying darkest day, and it was after the legislation on abortion. Now, is it the darkest day that's ever been in Northern Ireland? Probably not. There's been very dark days in this land. 
But there are dark days at the minute. And not just in, in, in that respect. There's dark days in lots of ways. The amount of violence. The amount of violence I see on the news just in a mild radius of this church is shocking. I saw this morning that a lady's been arrested on attempted murder. A 34-year-old lady attacking a 31-year-old. And you know, and you just see it, the, the violence and, and the darkness and, and the lack of spiritual interest and people just seeming to be doing what's right in their own eyes, but what they're doing is not good. And society seems to be going down the drain in many ways. Lots of good things too, don't get me wrong, but, but in a big sense, there seems to be a lot of darkness, a lot of depression, a lot of suicide, a lot of people feeling that their lives are meaningless. And, and I think the encouragement from the book of Ruth that I'm certainly taking is this, that, that even in the darkest of days, the Lord is at work. Even in the darkest of days, the Lord is on the throne and the Lord is at work. And the Lord is working towards his plan and towards salvation. And that's what we see with this little bit at the end. You know, in these darkest days, in these darkest days, God was working out a plan to bring the light of the world. In these darkest days, God was planning to send the light into the world. And tonight what I want to say to you is, please don't despair at these dark days. Well, do despair, but don't despair as those who have no hope. Don't despair as those who think that God has somehow just forgotten everything and is, you know, going to let it all just go. God is on the throne. And in these darkest days, he's still at work. And one day, I believe, there'll be light again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this lovely little book. Thank you even just for the respite tonight from the, the darkness of judges. Lord, I pray tonight that each of us would grasp not just with our heads, but with our hearts, the love you have for us. Lord, even though at times we can struggle to believe that you're at work uh, in all the situations that we're going through, we, we pray that tonight you'd help us to believe that. And help us to believe, Lord, that you're working for our good. And Lord, in these dark days, help us to cling to the hope that we have in you, that one day you will bring light, that one day you will reveal your son again, that one day people will flock to him and find salvation and joy and life. Well, Lord, for our land that is dark at the minute, please, Lord, we ask, would you shine your light soon again? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.